HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. Order now at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from a little bit even later than normal, around 12.15 today, you know, to around 12.45, like, you know, 1 o'clock, from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, br- 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 Brooklyn, joined, oh! joined as usual with Nastasia uh, the Hammer Lopez. How are you doing, Nastasia? Good. So, actually, Nastasia and I went on an adventure last week, which we'll see if we have time to talk about our, uh, our adventure uh, to the great town of Saratoga Springs. But we have two guests in the studio with us today. We have kitchen appliance engineer Joe Zakowski. How you doing? Good afternoon. Yeah, and we have the, uh, the reigning uh, current pr- crown prince of the Museum of Food and Drink, uh, Peter Kim. Here to spread hate and vacate. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of vacate? Number two? That's actually a, ri- uh, a line from Exhibit. I don't know if you remember that guy. I, I remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spe- yeah, with the, with the spelling X. Yeah, X-Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Anyway. Strength. We got Dave in the booth. What up? How you doing? Good. Speaking of Dave in the booth, uh, so a number of months ago, uh, Nastasia and I, along Carlos in that too, right? In the in the one we did for uh, Johnny Walker, Dave. Oh, I wasn't yes, here that day, uh, so I'm not sure. But yeah, we yeah. do have the episode. Yeah, so uh, we taped a. Uh, well, I gotta admit, it was like a show thing. Like we were like, they were like, "Hey, will you do this episode for this new Johnny Walker product?" And we're like, "Okay." But anyway, we actually taped a full on episode. And if you don't like the wine episode, you shouldn't go to this listen. one. But we're gonna tweet out uh, as the last of Nastasia and. Uh, my contractual tweet and Instagrams. We will uh, send out a uh, a link like that's not in our normal uh, cooking issues feed to a cooking issues episode where we talk to the rare the rare beast, unfortunately, in the uh, in in the spirits world, but the the female master uh, blender, uh, which is. Uh, which is awesome. You know what I mean? Need, need more of that. It, uh, the industry needs to uh, shift to a more uh, gender Balanced. parity situation. What? Balance. Balance. Yeah. Balance. Uh, all right. Well, how, how are we going to start here? Peter, 
why don't you why don't you before before you just start throwing your hate and your vacate why don't you just uh why don't you drop your uh drop your plug knowledge for the museum of food and drink oh yeah so uh we are working right now on chow the making of chinese american cuisine and uh Basically, yeah, you've got this situation where... I don't three- think they know. I don't think we've talked about it because you haven't let oh, us talk about it on air. What? Yeah. All right, okay. Uh, okay. Why don't you explain yeah. what so, the exhibit is? Yeah, yeah, I'm explaining the exhibit, man. All right, jeez. Um, Before so, you ask them for money, why don't you at least... I'm not doing it, man. All right. Tell them. All right. All right. Yeah, so, uh, so you've got this situation where you've got over 50,000 Chinese restaurants in the U.S. They're all over... And look, so I, I grew up in the Midwest, right? Um, okay. You know, middle of nowhere, Danville, Illinois. Whoa, what are you um, insult- insulting on your, uh, no, on your I mean, upbringing? It's true. It's, it's true. I mean, so anyway, we, we were one of the only uh, Asian families in the town. And when we wanted to, you know, like I grew up eating like meatloaf and like green bean casserole, but also like, you know, dried squid and other Korean stuff. But when we wanted to go out to eat. You know um, what? Dried squid would be nice in the green bean casserole. Yeah, yeah, mm. sure. Um, uh, so when we wanted to go out to eat and we wanted to eat something that wasn't like Olive Garden, it was a Chinese restaurant, and uh, and I think you know it was really the only option for going out to eat that to have something that was like you know quote in quotes uh, ethnic, um, and so uh, that's actually the case in a lot of parts of the country. I so mean, you, you live the Asian version of the Christmas story. Yeah, basically. All right. Yeah, there you go. Um, and so you have this like situation where these restaurants are all around the country. They're all serve- They're all run by uh, Chinese immigrant families. Uh, they are serving a menu that um, I think we all know is not a lot like food in China. Um, and it's one of these things that's become just such a central part of American culture. <laughs> um, and uh, so what's this, you know, I guess it's a sort of curious situation. We want to know, you know, what the story is behind that. And it turns out there is over 100, there are over 150 years of history behind this cuisine. And so we're going to tell the story of that with the exhibition. All right. So, like, to, to boil that down into, like, 30 seconds, the number, how many restaurants, roughly? Over 50,000. That's, like, three times the number of McDonald's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's many more, uh, in fact, there's more Chinese uh, restaurants in the U.S. than uh, Burger King, McDonald's, and Wendy's combined, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, because there's more McDonald's than any of those other ones, and there's three times as many McDonald's, so yeah, clearly exactly. more. Uh, the, the other thing I think it's really interesting is uh, we kind of take this thing for – we take Chinese food for granted, Chinese-American food, even though it's weird that you have this kind of ubiquitous and kind of monolithic cuisine. I'm not talking about like the new fancy stuff that yeah. like – you know, we're not talking about your, like, your Danny Bowens or your, anything like that. We're talking about like old-school Chinese-American uh, cuisine. How did, how did this happen that we have a cuisine that is neither cooked by the, those, uh, the people who are making – so people who own the Chinese restaurant, the recent immigrants, as you put it, normally, not all those. Some, some of them, three, four generations have been having these Chinese yeah. restaurants, especially some of the older, more important ones. But they don't cook this food at home, right, for their family, right, exactly. typically, typically. Yeah. Uh, and and yet, yet here it exists. It's almost like a synthesized cuisine. It's super interesting, unlike Italian-American cuisine right. where Italian-Americans actually cook – that stuff at home. Everybody does. Who yeah. doesn't make like lasagna? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. eggplant palm. Anyway, yeah. but like, the, but the point is, is that like that style of, of food exists as a living home cuisine and as a restaurant cuisine. Yeah, and it's not just that, but it's like everything around the menu too. You've got the whole sort of format of the meal. You've got the takeout box. You have fortune cookies. You've got sauce packets. You've got like the aesthetic. Um, and yeah, I mean, although I, we're not going to, we're not going to, I mean, no, I mean, but my, my point is like, it's, it's this whole thing that got developed and like, yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like this crazy story behind it. Yeah. So the, 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 the thing is how'd that happen? That's the, that's what this, that's what the exhibit's about. Yeah. How did this happen? Yeah. yeah exactly. You know what I mean? So. And it's, uh, it's going to be tied into a launch of our non brick and mortar, uh, based, uh, web presence as well. Yeah, yeah. Right. 
Yeah, so we're going to have a beautiful menu collection. going to have tastings, which is going to be a first for us, actual food. Putting the food back in the Museum of Food and Drink. Yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, and Peter's then, like, uh, there'll still be pellets. Don't worry <laughs> for all of you pelletized people out there. There will still be pellets. And uh, we're going to keep the stink machines going. Yeah, stink machines. Some of the stink going. machines. Yeah, and, and uh, I saw that in the chat room. Somebody had a problem with it last time with it all smelling like popcorn, pyrazine, whatever. But we fixed that. So... Um, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, it's like um, sometimes those, those valves are literally there's just like a little valve. <laughs> Listen, I, I thank God it hey. wasn't the butyric acid. You oh, know what yeah, I mean? The cheesy, cheesy vomit. Uh, yeah. yeah. But my point is, is that uh, sometimes those valves get stuck open a little bit. And so we probably need to open and reseal the valves yeah, and yeah, to totally. stop them from uh, actually the valves when they're going wrong, make a kind of a wah wah noise. Yeah, that's true. Like a little, yeah. like a little mini. Yeah, that's what I was going for. Little toot noise. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, so uh, we have a Kickstarter going for Chow right now, and uh, you know when you back the campaign, you get tickets. To, we're going to have a, a, a weekend opening for two days. It's going to be on the fourth and the fifth of November. Uh, and that's Chow be like before eating, not like Chow. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, Chow. Chow Bella, yeah. So not, uh, not like that. Not like that. <laughs> like Chow. Like I should make an ice cream called Chow Bella with like C H O W. Well, interestingly, and, something you'll learn if you show up at the exhibit is there used to be a uh, um, a uh, a Chow Chop Suey Sunday. Yeah, yeah. Right. Chop Suey Sunday. Yeah. That was. Yeah. Uh, that was basically just hacked up little pieces of dried fruit on top of the ice cream. And I have yeah, to yeah. say, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, man. You need to bring that one back. Yeah. Nastasia, what are your feelings on chewy things on your ice cream? Uh, that sounds good. Like gummy bears? Well, not that chewy, but yeah, like of that order. But in other words, like in general, like typically for me on an ice cream, I prefer things that like pop and break rather mm. than things that chew. What about, what about like chendol or like Southeast Asian ice desserts? We got the chewy noodles. Um, look, I love that, man. I can deal. I'm not, I'm never like, I can deal. I can enjoy something like that. Or like, for instance, mochi. like. Mochi. Mochi. I love mochi. Oh, that's chewy ice cream. Uh, I got you. All right. That's yeah, fair. Yeah. But po- it's, it, holes it, you left and right it's like a thing, but like, like a big, like, like a big, like grated ice thing with like the, with like the cream and stuff and beans. I like it. I like it. I like it. I, I enjoy having them, but I'm never like, Hey, you know what I'm going to go out and get right now? Do you know what would really fix me up right now? That. Right. For you, it would actually be a half a grapefruit and a block of cheese. Uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Five and a half grapefruits. I really, people yeah. out there, I really, Just really like grapefruits. Just so y'all like know what the, what the thing that he is saying. <laughs> I really, is. really like grapefruits. Do you ever wake up in the morning and you're like, I need grapefruit? That never yeah. happens to you? Yeah, yeah, I love grapefruit. Joe, you like grapefruit? It's a high quality yes. fruit. But anyway, let me just get this out. Well, it's strangely, like, a lot of the ones you buy are incredibly poor quality. Like, it's, just, like, it's, like, it's not violently... Uh, like nauseating the way that a bad pistachio is. Mm. But when you, by the way, the way I eat grapefruits, I don't do that like, you know, I don't do that like American 50s thing, cutting them in half and stuff. I just peel them and eat them. But like my point is, is that like there's something very, like just so disappointing about a bad grapefruit. The one where it's just thin, there's no sweetness, all acid, slightly bitter, too much pith. Yep, it's just yep. so disappointing, especially the ones that are not like juicy when they get dry. Oh my oh god. god! Oh my god! And you can see the the segments kind of break apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just look at it, and you're so sad. First of all, 
you paid two bucks for that thing. Yeah, you exactly. know what I mean? And then you and and you know, you're a reasonably smart person, right? I hope we're all reasonably smart people. So when you pick up the grapefruit, you you're picking one that's not too spongy, right? I mean, you know, look, bearing in mind that you know whether it's a California or a Florida grapefruit, so you know what the fundamental skin thickness should be you're trying to heft the fruit itself to see whether or not it contains enough water and make that judgment you make that judgment and you get home and when you still have garbage like with all of the thinking and the two dollars later it's just so disappointing yeah yeah Yeah. i hate it yeah anyway go ahead yeah so go to chow.mofad.org chow is spelled c-h-o-w not the italian way um and our at our kickstarter you can get tickets to the uh, private opening of the exhibition, and uh, Dave, Dave will be there. I'll be there. <laughs> we'll be <laughs> yep, exactly, um, and uh, we'll have some fun surprises for people there. And then you get membership to the museum, um, and you get to help us out with uh, building the next show. So yeah, go to chow.mofed.org. Yeah, all right. So uh, and now you can just be hate-filled Emperor Peter from here on out. <laughs> Strike fully operational. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, by the way, Peter and I almost always only talk to each other in Emperor Palpatine voice. Yeah, yeah. Which sometimes can fade into like stereotypical Jewish grandmother. Wow, yeah. I never really thought about it. it. Could do that for me. I'm not going to put you on the spot. If you feel it, if you feel it later in the show, you can you can do it. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not. I don't want to. That's like a lot to put you on the spot for. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know. Like, um, so Joe, what are you what are you working on now? So I'm just here to support cooking issues. Oh and come on now! You got if you're on the show, you got to tell like give us like, like what are you working on? Anything that you can talk about? Nothing I can talk about. I'd have to kill you. Well, I'm sure many people would. <laughs> Do you want many, to take a, many, to... many, many men wish death upon me to bring out you some. Who's that? What's that? You don't know that song? What? Many men wish death upon me. No. Many, many men. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, wait, you say we got a call, Dave? Yeah, you want to take a call? Yeah, let's do it. Oh, by the way, uh, call in your appliance design-related questions to Joe Zakowski. I believe here. this is sous vide-related. Oh, here we go. All right, I know how to do that. Caller, you are. Uh, hello. Hey. Yeah. Um, first question. I I just sent the recipe. Um, I ended the Heritage Radio email address. It's um, for peau de cram. It's basically homemade chocolate pudding. Right. Right. But the recipe is. Is how to do it without using the sous vide machine, and I just needed your best guess for a um, time and temp to do it sous vide. Because while it comes out great, the stir- standing there and stirring for at least twenty minutes is just a more than a pain. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't have the recipe in front of me because it's on the computer, but uh, most of those set custards are in the eighties range Celsius, uh, like. So, like, for instance, like, when I'm doing – so uh, it depends on how much stuff you have in it, right? Like, it all depends on the solids ratio. But – so something that's very liquidy that you don't want to set, like a creme anglaise, I'll do it, like, 82 Celsius. But that, that'll only be for, like, 15 minutes. And if you were to rock that that way for uh, an hour, it wouldn't quite set, but it would be close to set. No, but you're going to have a much higher uh, egg ratio probably in, uh, in, in your custard – and so I would guess, my guess is you're going to want to be somewhere around 85C. And if it's in a small ramekin situation, I'm assuming when you mean sous vide, you mean like in a combi oven, like in a ramekin, uh, uh, that you, or in a steam oven. Which, by the way, I hear, I hear, uh, who was it? I think Cuisinart makes a, a countertop steam oven now. That is correct. Yeah, and I hear it's pretty good. It's great. How low a temperature, Joe, can that go to? Do you know? It can prove. 
it can proof. So if you had one of those, you could probably steam set a low temperature a, a pot de creme, uh, and I would hit it in the 85C range. Uh, and depending on how thick it is, usually I'm doing them in relatively thin ramekins. Um, I would probably go on the order of a uh, half hour to 40 minutes. But, Joe, do you actually have you done that recipe in one of those ovens? I have not. Uh, maybe we can find out a recipe and get back to you. You know, John Darragon, formerly of uh, Please Don't Tell the Bar, uh, has one of those Cuisinart ovens, and he was uh, going off on how it was the you know the, the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. Do you know what the MSRP on those things is? Roughly? 150 That's cheap. It's cheap. That's my best guess. What do you, you fill it on the side like a coffee maker? How do you put the water into it? It just comes with an infinite amount of water. Yeah, 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 sure. Anyway. All right, so uh, is this answering your question, I hope? Uh, um, well, that's, that's pretty good. Um, pretty clear for that first question. And then I have a completely separate second question. All righty. Also sous vide related. I'm, tr- I'm working on a recipe to do uh, a pork roast with pork and cranberry um, sous vide. Mm-hmm. And um, the first try I made at it, I didn't quite use enough salt, and it just wasn't really really tasty right. and I also didn't pre-brown it the second try I used what was clearly too much salt but I also uh, I browned the heck out of it before I put it in the bag and it got that porky taste like the uh, that sort of unpleasant porky hint right now are you vacuuming it or are you ziplocking it uh, vacuuming it huh because I would usually – that porky taste usually is a fat breakdown oxidation kind of a situation. So I would have assumed that a vacuum bag would take care of that unless how do you, how'd you, how'd you brown it? Well, I just um, – I just – I have – I've had my baking steel parked in my grill for forever. So I just got that as hot as it would get and hit it on you know, all four of the major sides. Hmm. That's unusual. I would guess usually um, what's considered – not pleasant animal flavors come from fat oxidation um and typically i mean i and you did a hard vac on it it was a hard vacuum uh well it's a food saver yeah i mean that should be enough to get rid of enough i mean like that would be my guess i don't know maybe someone in the chat room dave can uh has any sort of uh uh, stuff on this happening Like uh, how are the cranberries Did you pre-cook the cranberries Or were you using dried cranberries uh, No I just I was um, So I I put salt and pepper on it Let it sit for a day or two uh-huh. um, Vacuumed uh, Vacuumed it down for that And then I uh, Opened it up uh, Brushed whatever salt was left on the outside Which basically did all absorbed right. um, And um, uh, put it Um Browned it and put it in a in a fresh bag with the port and cranberries. Oh, but this, but the cranberries were pre-cooked. Another uh, another no, cranberries were dried. Dried. You know how they make those dried cranberries? They squish the cranberry juice out of them, and then they use the skins, and then they mix the skins with a boatload of sugar. Well, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't mind them. I, I love them. I'm just like saying, like that's how they make them. Like, it's always yeah, curious. I mean, they, yeah. They just, really work for several recipes we, we, we cook with. I mean, I, I realize they're not really health food. I don't, I don't really care about it. I'm not a health food kind of a guy. I'm just saying it's like it's kind of it's like it's it's like one of those actually I think it's genius. These guys took what is fundamentally a byproduct and they turned it into something that you know I enjoy eating 
my kids enjoy eating. That's even rarer. You know what I mean? And I think that they, they are useful in recipes. Trust me, I understand picky children. Yeah. Well, the other oh, thing. God, do I understand picky children? The other thing about those, uh, if you were to use, uh, even if you were to actually dehydrate your own cranberries, which, by the way, like, I've never tried to eat one of my Christmas uh, strings before, but, like, uh, Peter, you ever eaten one of your Christmas strings when you were a kid? Did you do the cranberries and popcorn? No. Nastasia, did no. you eat cranberries and popcorn when you were a kid? No. Joe? I was, like, dried no. squid. None of you guys? Dave? No. Never heard of that. Never, you never, never heard of it, yeah. took a needle and thread and popcorn and cranberries? Yeah. Anyway, this stuff when it's left over is like worse than, wor- I don't know. Anyway, the point is, is that the dried skins are good because they don't get all big and nasty. What are your guys' thoughts on inflated raisins and stews? Love. Yeah. Love? Yeah. Love. When I was a kid, I was freaked out by them because my mom would put the raisins into the stew. And then uh, I was like, oh, raisins. I understand what a raisin is. And then it came out as a half grape. It wasn't like fully a grape anymore, but it wasn't a raisin anymore. And I was like, ah, ah. And so like my whole life, like I've learned to like, because they taste good. Like just like, like strictly speaking, they taste good. And so like, uh, anyway, I don't know. It's a weird, another weird mental problem I have, I guess. You know what I mean? You never had something shock you when you were a kid and it sticks with you yeah, for of years? Course, man. Yeah. That's like I feel like that's Nastasia's whole life. And I never liked chocolate milk because I have this memory in elementary school of being spilled like everywhere on the lunchroom table and being grossed out by that. By you? Did you spill it, Dave? I, no, it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. And you still remember that to this day, huh? Yeah, just like pooling in the lunch tray, like ugh. That's nasty. I can remember yeah, biting brown pool. I can remember mm. biting into a uh, cream-filled donut that was moldy, and that I wasn't able to eat cream filling for. Mm. Almost a decade. Uh, I was very small, but I still remember. I remember where I was. I was. I was in a, a, a waiting room next to the chock full of nuts at the 168th Street Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, while my, where my mom had gotten me something to eat while she was going to go do uh, uh, something for her internship. And I just remember sitting at this freaking chair at 168th Street and biting into this freaking moldy. This is horrifying. Yeah. I can, well, as I, you know, I don't really care about there being mold on my food. So. Yeah, he loves it. I can remember my mom frying parsnip chips upstairs uh, for some holiday, and I, I was violently ill at the time and associating the smell of frying parsnips with throwing up. And I still, to this day, like a lot of veg chips, I'm like, eh, no thanks. No thank you. You know what I mean? It's like they taste good, but it's just it's still got that kind of violent association with them. Again, this is Nastasia's whole life, though. Like, she'll associate whole cities with hanging out with a person she didn't like. I mean, I'm talking as an adult. I'm not whole talking about as a kid. Civilizations. Whole, yeah, whole, yeah, whole, like, you know, I mean, there's a billion of you. Do I need you, to go into more detail yeah, here? There's a, there's a billion of you out there. If she met one of you and had a bad time, you're all, you're all painted with the same brush. Yep. That's that's uh, well, and not just the billion that exists now, but the billions that have existed before them as well, and the future billions, <laughs> and the future billions. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. yeah, 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 very strong. Anyway, so back to this question. I don't know what's causing the porkiness. My assumption is that maybe you had a piece of pork with uh, more fat. It was already slightly oxidized before it went into the bag. Um, I have also done stocks, and sometimes they come out more or less porky, but I don't know whether it's having to do with the actual um, uh, characteristics of the meat that went in. I think you're, you're protecting it as well as you can by uh, vacuuming it. You want to chill it and vac it as soon as you can. I mean, what I typically do, uh, what I used to do when I wanted to vac something right after a sear down was um, I would uh, put the, I would sear it, throw it into a bag. And then immerse that bag unsealed in ice water 
uh, to chill down the meat, and then I would uh, then you could seal it really quickly. Another thing is is you might want to consider. I mean, if it's a recurring thing, then it's clearly just you're getting some sort of uh, uh, reaction where uh, just the initial sear, maybe the sear was at maybe even, I hate to say it's too high a temperature and you're getting some off flavors uh, from it. Uh, you could do it un- unseared, but you're just going to have to put a hard sear on afterwards. And when you do it that way, you know you're not going to get any oxidation from the initial sear down. So typically, remember, uh, especially for things like beef or things like short ribs, uh, which is beef, like uh, I, uh, I w- recommend um, the only one I never I say never to sear beforehand is duck breast. Never never sear the duck breast beforehand because it, it you need it to stay flat so that you can crisp it up in the pan later. But um, uh, I, w- I would say uh, always sear afterwards. Always sear afterwards. The, 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 well, that, yeah. that was always part of part of the plan. I was trying to get a uh, put a piece here on too and. You know, you get more flavor of it actually in the meat. That's true. I'm a firm believer in that because – but the thing is, is it maybe this – maybe this sear – so I, I don't know. I don't have like which, – which cut of pork was it? A uh, uh, shoulder. Yeah. Bone-in shoulder. So, you know, I haven't done uh, – I haven't done a lot of whole uh, bone-in shoulder. Um, I've done some, but I'm doing them – I was doing those things mainly more like uh, – like uh, imitating like a uh, pulled pork or confit or just salted, like not like heavy seared because I would leave skin on and then crisp up the skin afterwards. So that more of like or more like Kahlua pig kind of a presentation uh, of the shoulder. So I haven't had a lot where I do like a hard sear all the way around. It might be that just a uh, long storage in the bag is uh, w- with that initial sear is is cause- causing it to happen. Um, you know what I used to do that I don't do anymore. I used to t- when I, I was tr- I would trim all all the meat that I was going to finally have as my portion. And then I would roast all the trim, just roast the hell out of all the trim and then throw the trim in the bag to get the transfer of brown uh, trim pre-cooked flavor into the meat as it was going on, on long cooks. But as I get older, I get lazier. So. Well, I'm, I'm planning to do this recipe for like a a 40, 50 person party. So I'm, I was trying to make it as streamlined as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, a sh- the good news about a shoulder is uh, that it can stand a good bit of crisping on the on the. Uh, you're serving it whole or you're shredding. You're you're. What are you doing? You're you're cook. You're going to pull the piece. Is it skin on? Okay. So what I'm what I'm planning to do is get skin on, cook it whole, brown it whole, and then and then shred it. Okay. So you get so you get the little shredded bits mixed in with the rest of the pulled meat. Yeah. Okay. So if you're going to pull it, people like a little bit of textural textural variation, and I would say to streamline this, make your life easier. I would just get your salt levels right, uh, and then um, I would, especially if you're going to have the skin on it, because the skin's going to pull and get all wonky. And you have a lot of fat there, and there's a lot of fat there that is relatively soft and prone to oxidation in the skin side of the uh, uh, in the in the skin there. So I would. Um, I would cook it whole without searing it, and then I would pull it, and I would do a hard sear at the finish because that's going to crisp up the cracklings. You need a certain amount of time 
uh, afterwards. Even if you've pre-seared, you need a certain amount of time to crisp the, the crackling up on the outside that you're going to shred into it. And you might you, – it's going to be more predictable. So like even if it's an effect where sometimes you sear it beforehand and you, and you get the porky taste and sometimes you don't, if it's, like a, if it's a, a piece of meat-specific kind of a situation, uh, you, know, you can't predict it beforehand. And the worst thing is to have it not taste the way you want when you pull it out of the bag. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, at, trust me, I do. At the event. <laughs> so I would just do um, one more without it and then try like a, a slightly slower uh, like a, like render crisp sear on the uh, on the pullout Al- right, so, almost like sous vide right, so, for insurance so it's, it's, it's likely to be more predictable if I don't pre-sear yes got it that's well that's, that's also less work so that's great all righty let us know how it works out thank you sir all right cool Dave should we take a quick break uh, yeah we can do that let's take a quick break and come back with more cooking issues <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Joule, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. If you're listening to this show, you're probably a pretty good cook. Maybe you already know that sous vide is the best way to get a kick ass, juicy steak. And with Joule, a new sous vide tool from Chef Steps, you can do so much more. Smoky tender ribs, homemade yogurt, creme brulee, bright, crunchy pickles, vibrant purees, even smooth, creamy ice cream, all perfectly cooked every time. Joule is sleek and small enough to fit in your kitchen drawer, and it's operated by an elegant, smartphone app that's been designed to remove the guesswork, get you cooking faster, and give you the information and inspiration you want when you want it. Browse Chef Steps' amazing recipes and helpful guides. Choose your perfect doneness for any meat and get notified when your food is ready. You know you'll get great results, so you can focus on sides and sauces or just pour yourself a cocktail and chill until you're ready for a delicious dinner. For more information and to order yours now, visit chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. And we're back. Uh, so uh, I got some reaction from one of the shows uh, earlier. Uh, Andrew writes in regarding my saying that I don't like uh, sweet tea. Because I'm saying I don't like sweet tea. It's not, I mean, okay. Anyway, he says, uh, a couple weeks ago I wrote in about trying to get a honey flavor in a lavender cocktail. I took your advice and it's been, uh, wor- been working on perfecting my cocktail. I'll update you on how it's going pretty soon. My issue today refers to something that Dave said on the show. Uh, while discussing sweet tea, he said... I hate that stuff. Uh, Dave, I understand that you have years of experience in food and technology. I know your palate must be outstanding, or at least it's mine. Uh, Your knowledge is obviously immense, but how can I, a child of North Carolina who, by weight, has consumed more sweet tea than flour and water combined, trust you? I'm just curious what your issue with sweet tea is. Do you dislike cold tea? Is it too sweet? Have you had a bitter glass that turned you off on it? What about cocktails? What about in cocktails or desserts? I also like to use tea flavor in meat marinades occasionally. I get it. There's bad sweet tea, but please help me change your mind. I'll do whatever I can. All the best, Andrew. All right. Here's what I don't like, Andrew. Like, I have no problem with cold. I like cold tea. I like cold tea with a modicum of sugar. I think the issue is is that, like, uh, let's say I was going to uh, North Carolina barbecue joint, Eastern, of course, because I don't put tomato in my... In my uh, Whatever. Anyway, I'm not going to get off it. I don't want to get you upset because I don't know where in North Carolina you're from. But the stuff that I enjoy the most, I enjoy all North Carolina barbecue, which is, of course, pork and, of course, with thin sauce, vinegar base. I enjoy it all, but I enjoy mostly the more coastal variety that is fundamentally just like 
pepper, vinegar, and, and meat. Like that's like my style. Now, if you're going to go to one of those kind of restaurants in Raleigh or wherever you're going to go, and they have those uh, kind of – I'm looking at them right now, those kind of amber-colored plastic pebbly glasses. Everyone knows what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. right, with those things. And they have a jug of what uh, is, amounts to simple syrup with tea in it, and they pour it, and there's not even any acid because some of these places will not – I know, I know, I know. Now, some of these places won't put it like lemon even like next to it or with it, and you're just consuming simple syrup tea. I'm like – because I am a thirsty man. I am a thirsty man. Like that is something that I could enjoy. Like take for instance, I like overly sweet mint tea. Like uh, like Moroccan style or like you know like you, you know in Paris they have those uh, like those Moroccan tea mint tea joints, Peter. Yeah, you like those? He's like he's shaking his head as though you can see his head shake on a microphone. But like the uh, the point being that I like sweet tea things in tiny amounts. Like same way that I like sweet beverages in tiny amounts. That's why cocktails, which are relatively small, can have some sugar in them without freaking me out. But when I am thirsty, I want to pound huge, huge Trump-style quantities of liquids. And so I require them to be not sweet. So iced tea that's a lot lower on sugar, I'm okay with. I like it with a little lemon in it. That's just me. So it's not I, – I, I should say – it's not the idea of cold tea that I have a problem with. It's overly, overly sweet tea. Joe, what are your feelings on this? I agree with you. I don't like it too sweet either. But do you find that a lot of places will serve it too sweet? Uh, way too sweet. Way too sweet, right? Too much sugar. Too much, too much freaking sugar. Yeah. Too much sugar is not good for you. Well, I don't, I don't, like I said, I've said before, my health, you know, you know, I just don't like it. That's my thing. What, Stas, do you, do you like cold? you like iced tea? No, not really. Wow. Well, Andrew can hate on you. It's all right. But what do you not like about it? I just don't prefer it. Just don't, don't prefer pref- drinking it. Don't prefer drinking it. Yeah. What does that mean? Like, I wouldn't choose it. Like, over nothing? Over nothing, sure, I'll drink it. All right. Peter, sweet tea? Eh, not, my, not really my jam. Deep, but, like, I, look, I can appreciate Andrew's position here as a cultural thing. It's oh, like, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when I, when I, you know, just not too sweet, that's all. Yeah. You're like, okay, whatever. You guys are the worst. Brandon writes in, Hi, Anastasia. Follow-up. Uh, I sent my last email before listening to the episode. that I shouldn't have read that because you don't know what he's talking about. Uh, something to add to the discussion about tropical-tasting fruits that grow in temperate regions. So this is, uh, we were talking about the May apple, which is the jelly I make where, actually, that jelly was delicious. Did I bring the jelly in or just the raw fruit for you guys to taste? I think it's just the raw fruit, and Nastasia wouldn't taste it because she got no stones. No stones. Not willing to risk her life for good-tasting materials. Um, anyway, uh, this episode is really uh, this is really late comment considering that episode was in June, but I figured that uh, Nastasia and Dave and the gang uh, did not mention the pawpaw tree. Uh, if you have not heard of it, the pawpaw is native to a large, propor- a large portion of the United States and is, to my knowledge, one of the only truly tropical-like fruits that grows in the temperate regions of the U.S. In uh, size, shape, and texture, it is similar to a mango, but the taste is kind of a cross between a mango and a banana. Pretty delicious, but very difficult to find. Well, I do know about them, but I haven't really had a lot because they're very hard to ship. Uh, I'm uh, only fortuitous enough to have tried it because my architecture and landscape firm uh, specified it in one of our projects. I don't have any questions. I'm just writing to share and figure you all be interested in one of the most under-the-radar delicious fruits that is native to the U.S. So look, about a month ago, I didn't know you were doing this, I tr- called this guy who has these pawpaw nurseries, but the problem is is that I couldn't find someone who would ship me a good pawpaw tree because I'm planning on planting some to see how they 
to see how they they work. You have pawpaws, Joe? No, in Connecticut, are you doing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they grow in Connecticut. They grow. They, they like like you know like uh, Brandon was saying. They grow in most of the temperate regions. They don't ship very well. Like they're very soft and they don't ship very well. And I think they're relatively polarizing and the cultivars are relatively different. So it's kind of hard uh, to um, get get people to you know get into it as a as a commercial fruit but yes i plan on uh sampling uh pawpaws you ever what about you peter you got any pawpaws Mm-mm. your parents are now in tropical fruit land not tropical like california style subtropical fruit yeah. where do they live now outside san diego mm, of course me weather's nice me <laughs> i told you there are studies that show that after two years you don't give a crap about the weather anymore like, if someone asks you, is the weather nice where you are, you'd be like, yeah, I love it. But, like, you don't rate yourself as happier because the weather is nice? No. Nastasia, do you hate do you hate good weather because it makes people soft? Is that why you don't like Is that why you like it here? Or is it that you just don't like the people in California, and that's why you moved over here? I don't like the people in California. Huh. Wow. All you Californians out there, I like you. But Nastasia, not so much. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, and she's from there. So it's like one of those things where, you know, I always think self-hate's a little weird. But, you know, you can't get down on someone for the self-hate. Can you? Are you allowed to make fun of someone for self-hate? I don't know. Peter, what are you? How, what are your feelings <laughs> on the self-hate? You're a self-hater. <laughs> I feel that you're allowed to have a lot of self-loathing, like, when you're in college. I feel that's what college is about. Like, teenage years... The adolescence is about like becoming a better person through self-loathing, but I think I feel you should grow out of it. Mm. What do you think, Peter? No, Joe, self-loathing. I think it's more like after yeah. college you go through that phase, you know, and you're trying to find yourself or whatever. Yeah. Well, then, and then, then, then you, you come out of it. Then you self-loathe for self-loathing, and that's mm. all. That's so all multi-layered. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're like, why am I 36 and still? Self-loathing. Oh, you yeah. tell me. You tell me. I'm sure it has something to do with the Museum of Food and Drink. <laughs> Zing, it's funny because it's true. Mm. All right, so. So I guess, Davey, just answer the question. It's okay to make fun of people who self-loathe. <laughs> Learn by doing. Oh, yeah. Learn Learn by doing. How's it, how do you feel now? You've got a big smile on your face. So there's the answer. Yeah. 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 Hey, look, you know what? Peter can take it. That's why I like working with him. <laughs> I don't like working with people who can't take it. Do you know what I'm saying? What do you think, Stas? What do you think about people that working with people that can't we take it? We don't like it. We don't the whole like it. Crying thing. The whole like I need therapy thing. Oh, man, you're not, no, that's not right. Know, if someone I'm, needs I'm help, facetious. yeah, that's not right. I just like working with people that can give and get. Yeah. I don't like people that can dish it out and can't take it. God knows right. I take enough. <laughs> and God knows I dish enough out. Yes. Right, Stas? Yeah, Stas, yeah. Stas is shaking her head yeah. up and down. All right, listen. Yeah. So we had some more information on uh, the butter question we had before. So to, to, to re, you know, tell you what happened, uh, we had a, a James from uh, Cafe Bezalou in, I think, Seattle, uh, was having a problem with batch to batch. His butter was uh, brittle. You know, his butter was, but, but, butter was brittle. So he couldn't make, uh, like, puff pastry or croissant or anything like this because as he was stretching the dough, the butter would shatter into pieces and wouldn't stretch along with the dough, Right. And so, uh, you know, he had thought that it had something to do with um, maybe the feed of the animal or, or, uh, you know, the crystal size. So I wrote to uh, Professor uh, Doug Goff, who is like, you know, uh, one of the big wigs, does the ice cream stuff at the University of Guelph. Uh, Is that how you pronounce that place, Guelph? 
Guelph? No idea. Guelph? Guelph, 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 Guelph. Anyway, they have great dairy pages, and uh, I've read them for many years. I really enjoy them. Uh, and so I wrote him, and I gave him the question, and here's what he, he wrote. He wrote, hey, Dave, I forwarded your question to one of our faculty members with expertise in lipid technology, which is a fantastic thing. I did not hear from the lipid technologist, which would be a fantastic title, lipid technologist. Uh, so you may see a reply from him, but he tells me, which I did not, uh, he tells me that from his experience, uh, this is not uncommon, the brittle, brittle, brittle butter problem. Hey, say that with a stupid voice, Peter. You're good at that. I'm not doing – I'm not following this chat, man. Come on, man. No. Say it in your, in your – uh, I'm announcing the puffing gun voice. <laughs> Britter, brit, brittle butter. You have, you have a good, like, weird announcer voice. <laughs> I, I do that. Like, I roll the R. You do. You, start, you know what I'm talking about, Nastasia. Brittle butter. That's more like me at the beginning of the top of the show. Yeah, I know. You know what, Dax, every once in a while, I, like, it's like, uh, do the – do the beginning of the show. I'm like, no, I'm in the middle of like the house. I can't scream. We have neighbors. Anyway, uh, he tells me from experience that this is not uncommon. It is most likely related to fat crystal size and structure within the butter rather uh, than composition variation. When butter is manufactured, one of the objectives of cream tempering, churning, and working is to achieve very small fat crystals which then relates to smoother texture, consistency, and pliability. The exact temperatures and times of these stages does relate to composition, and that can vary by feed, etc. After manufacture, many uh, factors, including temperature variation during storage, delivery, and or the age of the butter, and that's also important, the age of the butter, uh, and I'll get more on that later, can cause an increase in fat crystal size. As this happens, butter becomes progressively more coarse in texture and brittle in structure. Think about melting butter uh, to oil and then putting it in the refrigerator to recrystallize. You get a very hard, brittle lump because it was not properly churned and worked. This would be the extreme. So the variation in quality is structure slash texture related and not really primarily uh, difference in the different kinds of triglycerides that are in the uh, butter. So that, he says, I hope this helps Doug Goff. It did help. Uh, so I wrote him and said, thank you, professor. And then I said this, uh, I said, I'll let you know if I hear from your colleague, which I did not. Uh, I'm pondering your response. In pondering your response, this is me. I wonder whether mechanical manipulation could help. Whenever I'm going to use butter in biscuits or cake and don't have time to let it temper, I beat it repeatedly with a rolling pin. I've always noticed that this plasticizes the butter. How much of that change is frictional heating? Probably only a small amount. I do not know. Could the effect of beating the cold butter help these folks, i.e., uh, you know, you guys at Cafe Bezalou? Um... Or is the effect too macro and wouldn't help them on the smaller scale of a puff paste? And he said, that might help, Dave. Could be worth a try at least. So I would try taking uh, some of the butter that is not working properly and beating the, beating the bejesus out of it. Um, but then I, I saw an article which is available free of charge on the inter internet that you need to read called The Effective Factors – get ready. Write this one down. The Effective Factors on the Structure of Butter and Other Milk-Fat-Based Products by Stein – I guess – how do you pronounce the O with a slash through it? O, right? Rönholt. R, O with a slash through it, N-O-L-N-H-O-L-T, uh, uh, September um, 2013. This article is terrible in the sense that what they really care about is uh, producing lower-fat butter, which, as we all know, is a horrible idea. Horrible. 
horrible. Uh, but it's a good article in that it talks about every stage step by step and what it does to fra- fat crystal size. And it has the uh, extreme advantage of being available on the internet. So uh, as you um, store butter and the temperature goes up, like let's say it's been tempered up to uh, 20 and then recooled and done a bunch of times, the, um, the, a lot of the smaller crystals and the ones with the um, lower melting points will melt out to a liquid even though the butter maintains its solid state. And then on recrystallization, slowly in the fridge, will get progressively larger crystals, which may be causing uh, some brittleness. Crystal size just increases with time as, as butter ages in the fridge, so maybe the brittle butter is older butter. Uh, uh, but maybe beating the heck out of it actually uh, might help. So uh, they're going to kick us off the air in, in a minute. But Nastasia and I uh, – actually, I think Nastasia actually enjoyed this trip, which is unusual. Nastasia usually hates most everything. We went to Saratoga Springs. Joe, you ever been to Saratoga Springs? Yes, I have. For, for the horse racing or for the water? I've been there during the horse racing time, but I didn't go to the horse races. Did you? What were you doing there? Just with my wife and children. Did you try the waters? Did you go to the spa state park? I did not go to the spa state park. Oh, my goodness. Peter, have you ever been to Saratoga Springs? No. I'm going to go back because uh, – so here's the deal. They have uh, – in Saratoga Springs, there are naturally carbonated water comes out of the ground. I want that to sink in for a minute. Naturally carbonated water comes out of the ground. So uh, – and the naturally carbonated water is actually very highly mineralized and saline. So mm-hmm. Nastasia – uh, um, Ariel, who was on the show last week, and my brother-in-law Travis, who was shooting uh, shooting it for, for, because we we're supposed to write something for Lucky Peach. We went and tasted every one of the natural springs in Saratoga. The Except one in the race course was closed; we couldn't go to it. Except uh, for two. Which is the other one? Lake. Oh yeah, there's one in a lake. I went back there later this the afternoon with bathing shorts on, and I just couldn't bring myself to wade in. How long were you there? I stayed. I figured. I, how often do I get to go there? I went and retasted a lot of the waters. Uh, anyway, so like this water is pretty amazing because uh, it's very old, very deep groundwater that is super heavily mineralized and saline, and it gets forced up to the surface, close to the surface, through a fault uh, that runs down through Saratoga. That's relatively recent. The fault has uh, CO2 coming all the way from uh, the mantle that goes up and pushes the stuff up and charges and as it comes up it's mixing with more recent like kind of uh, recharged rainwater meteoric water and there's a the interesting thing is there's a shale layer at the top of the ground there that caps it all in so it's all under pressure so when you bore down in it self pumps itself up so it's not strictly speaking an artesian well like you would get where you're actually digging a well where the head of the well is is below the water table and you're recharging from a mountain let's say it's literally getting forced up and carbonated from below, but unlike a lot of carbonated springs, it's also cool. It's at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and I think they're delicious. Stas, you liked it too, right? Yeah. I brought your bottle, by the way. I think they're delicious. They're super highly mineralized. I made a margarita with the strongest of the waters yesterday. I want to go back, but I have a plea for any all, 99, almost all, in fact, maybe all in the United States, uh, naturally carbonated springs are in the West where there's more thermal activity. But if anyone here, I know there's some in Colorado, I know there's some in California, if any of you live near a naturally carbonated spring and for some reason you like us, just get a seltzer bottle, like a water, like a like a, a carbonated water bottle, fill it up all the way, all the way, because otherwise we'll you lose too much through partial pressure, cap it and send it to us and we'll taste and talk about your water on the uh, on the air. I'm super interested in tasting just various naturally carbonated waters from all uh, all over the country. But more on Saratoga when I write it up for Lucky Peach and 
go visit Saratoga. Good place. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Peter. See you next time. Cooking Issues. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.